Now, if you went to every single Colorado University football game last year, you could have gone to every single game for $220 for the whole season. Just this year, the average ticket price alone for one single CU football game is $281. If you wanted to go to the CU-CSU game, it would have cost you $517 for just an average seat. Making CU football the most expensive football ticket in the entire country. CU football, who would have imagined that? The most expensive college ticket. Now, Taylor Swift actually came to town just a couple weeks ago. And at one point in time, if you were trying to get a Taylor Swift ticket, it would have cost you at minimum $800. Now, if you really wanted to see Taylor Swift up close, it would have cost you $18,000 to go see Taylor Swift. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. Worth it. I know that's what some of you guys are thinking right now, you Taylor Swift fans. If you want to go see the Denver Nuggets right now, you want to go see them, you can actually get like a nosebleed seat up in the rafters for like 20 bucks, actually. They've got affordable tickets. If you wanted to go see the Nuggets in the finals earlier this year and sit courtside, that would have cost you $50,000. Now, if you want to go see the Broncos right now, That's actually free. You can just walk in. They don't even charge anything. You, you walk right in. They're just hoping people will show up to see one of those games. <laughs> now, every single one of us in here, you actually understand the economics of ticket prices. You pay more for a better seat, right? Just basic common sense. And you may never pay $50,000 to go see a basketball game, but if some rich, famous person wants to, you're like, hey, that's their business. They paid for the seat. None of us in here is bothered when somebody has a better seat than us because we know they paid for it. Now, what if you pulled into church this morning and as you're coming in the drive, you get stopped by a parking attendant and he goes, hey, um, can I see your ticket? And you're like, ticket? He's like, well, yeah. We have premier parking where you can actually get asphalt and you can have a nice smooth spot, but we also have some more cheaper parking. You can park in the rocks and all the weeds over there too if you want something cheaper. Now imagine coming through the doors and then there's another person who's holding out an iPad to you and says, hey, pick your seat in the room, okay? We have different pricing levels and scales, okay? You want to sit nice and close right behind Pastor Brian in the second row over there? You pay a little bit more. What if you walk up to the communion line and they're like, okay, you can swipe here. We also have Apple Pay because we have to cover all the little bread costs and juice costs. Anybody here with kids or students? You walk to the kids or student check-in, and they're like, okay, first kid's free, but there's a surcharge for second, third, fourth, and fifth kids because that's extra volunteer demands and everything. If you walked in and had that experience today, how many of you would be bothered by that experience? Something in us knows that that's not exactly how a church should operate. Now, if you're just joining us today, maybe, maybe you're newer, we're actually this fall going through a letter that a guy named James wrote. He was actually the half-brother of Jesus. He lived in the first century. He's a prominent church leader at the time. And he wrote this letter that now ended up in our Bibles. And James is going to address the very concept that I was hinting at, talking about these ticket sales and seating. James is going to introduce what he would call a serious problem. A very serious problem. And if you want to follow along, read me in James chapter 2 today. I'm going to start right in verse 1. Let's see what this problem is that James is talking about. He says this, My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. 
Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So James introduces this problem. He calls it favoritism. Now, there's some other translations of the Bible that have words like partiality, even prejudice. What exactly is James talking about here? The actual literal idea that James is using actually literally means to receive the face. And James is pointing to assigning worth to somebody based on external characteristics. It's someone who is controlled by the surface level of things, what only you can really see. It is making a decision about someone without all the information. And James actually uses kind of this illustration, this rich and this poor guy and the different treatment they get. Now, some historical context might be interesting here. At the moment James was living in, most people, as much as 90% of the population lived in abject poverty. Everybody was poor. There was a very small, rich class, and there was no such thing as a middle class at then. You could not climb the social ladder. Whatever you're born into was basically what it was going to be. And the rich often oppressed the poor horribly. It was just part of the normal, everyday experience. And the poor were kind of these faceless nothings that they would either ignore or exploit. That's just kind of how it worked. Now, you hear that, and you're kind of bothered by that, right? That's not how the world should work. And if you're bothered at all by hearing that's how the world functioned, you should thank Christianity, whether you're Christian or not. Because we have benefited from the Christian worldview influencing our thinking on it. We think that's not fair. It doesn't matter how much money people have. Like, we should all treat people good. Well, you got to see, James at this moment is calling for something that was radically countercultural at the time. He was calling for equal dignity and treatment and attention for people of all life situations. This would have been category redefining for James's readers in the first century. Absolutely would blow their minds. And when James says favoritism, kind of fascinating, he actually says it in the plural. He's saying favoritism of many kinds. So he's not just talking about money here. This could include race, age, gender, physical appearance, so many different dynamics. He's saying we are not to make any distinctions about people based on shallow or insufficient evidence. Now, is anybody bothered by this at this point? You're probably on. I'm like, yeah, that sounds good, Brian. You tell those bigots, okay? You go tell those people, all right? I'm glad I'm not one of those judgy people, but you can tell them, okay, in this room. <laughs> now, if you're just a normal, probably decent person, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm willing to bet that you're not like living out blatant discrimination. Like you're not just blowing up with prejudice, putting it on full display. It's often a lot more subtle than that. Nicole and I have a group that meets on Tuesday nights of couples from the church. And we're just having a blast. Six couples, 13 kids just running around. It's just organized chaos. I love it. Just food and hanging out. It's a good time. And we're getting to know all these couples. And there's one couple in particular that are geographical mutts like Nicole and I. 
So they've lived in a bunch of different states. They've been all over the place. So I couldn't help myself. I was like, guys, rank your states for me. Like, what are your, where have been your favorite places to live? I'm just curious. And they said something that I didn't expect. They're like, Brian, Texas wasn't very good for us. I said, really? Texas? I hear that's a great country down there. I think a lot, don't a lot of people like Texas? Like, that's where everybody's trying to go right now. They're like, yeah, but here's what happened. You see, we moved from Washington to Texas. And they said, we would go to church and people would be like, oh, where are you from? And they'd say, well, Washington. And the wife said, you could see people's faces change right there in the moment. And she's like, you could feel it just pulsating off of them of, we don't want your kind around here. You're the ones ruining our great country down here in Texas. I'm, I'm not making fun of Texans. I'm just saying, even their own church had one tiny little piece of information about them, and they drew all sorts of conclusions about them as people. I have a family member who is a newer Christian, and she and her family recently found a church that they're loving, a great church. And after one particular service, they went over to this little kids play area that the church has. So the kids are playing and my family member, she ends up running into this lady she never met before. The kids end up being the same age. So they just start having a conversation. And the lady asks my family member, hey, what are you doing about school with your kids? Like, what, what's your guys' plan? You know, they're at that age. And my family member, she says, well, actually, we have them in the elementary school right down the street. And the lady's tone completely shifts. She said... I love my kids way too much to put them into public schools. I couldn't imagine any parent that actually loved their, who actually loved their kids sending their kids to the public school system. Like, how could any parent do that? And she goes on this whole deal and understand you are entitled to have an opinion about things, right? You can have a perspective. Nicole and I are educators. We're asking a lot of questions. I've talked to a lot of you. I've talked to teachers who work in the school system. There's definitely things to talk about. But you've literally known my family member for less than five minutes. And you're already drawing conclusions about her as a parent, as a human being, because of one detail of her life. You see, we don't often even recognize when we're doing this. It can be really, really hard to detect, and yet it drives so many of our emotions and our attitudes and even our interactions with other people. Think about yourself right now. Think about how your feelings about certain people change sometimes just based on maybe one single piece of information, even one interaction. You're having a conversation with somebody new, and you get one little hint about their politics. And your brain already starts playing out the whole scenario of who they are as a person right there, just based on one little thing. You have one kind of not great interaction with somebody. You know, the tone just gets off. And in your mind, you're like, oh, they're just a jerk. They're just a terrible human being. That's why they did that. It couldn't possibly be because of any other factors going on in their life or what's going on. We even can notice little things about people's wardrobe selections. We can notice about certain things they purchase. It can go all the way down to race, culture, age, even how straight somebody's teeth are. So many little things we use to determine where people stand in our personal pecking order. Now, James says, this is a dynamic we all experience on some level. But he says, when you do this, he says, you actually discriminate. Now, again, this is an important idea James is communicating. The literal definition to discriminate of what James is saying here means to have a divided attitude. 
James actually used the same word in chapter one when he talked about being tossed by the waves in the sea. And he said, you're double-minded. It's the same word. And what James is trying to press on is when you start discriminating between people and dividing them up in your mind, you actually are showing that you have a divided attitude towards God himself. It reveals something about your heart. He says, you are like a judge who's become corrupt. Using, using the image of a judge who takes bribes. I don't know if anyone saw in the news recently, we actually have a senator in our country now who's being accused of taking bribes. And they found hundreds of thousands of dollars slipped into coats and him doing these special favors for another country and these different interest groups. And this is going to trial next year. It's a whole thing. Now we hear about stuff like this probably all too often, right? And the first thing that goes to remind is, yeah, that is disgusting. That is wrong. You should not be using your position of power to manipulate, use, or use it for your own advantage. That is discriminating behavior. And God says, exactly. And that's exactly what you're doing when you are making these judgments about different people, even in your own heart and mind. And so this is the standard from James. God's people, if you're a serious Christian, you should not be someone who shows any form of favoritism, prejudice, or discrimination anywhere. You should show everybody the same love, affection, kindness, service, and not be using any external factors or judgments to drive your behavior towards them. Now, why is that such a big deal, though? Why is this something that James feels like deserves to be in the Bible? You know, why does he put this in his letter? Now, I have to add a little disclaimer here. James is about to get very negative for just a little bit, all right? And this is what I don't love always about going through a book of the Bible. I wish I could just jump over it and just conveniently skip the verses, but I know some of you guys are following around. You're going to notice that I'm doing that. So we got to press through. But can I promise you this? We will end happy, okay? We'll end very happy. But we got to get through this. James actually gives us three reasons why this is actually such a problem. Why is favoritism a big deal? This is the question James is now going to answer. Why is this such an issue? Look at verse five. He says, listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Now think about how we just usually think about people's economic situation. Nobody wants to be poor, right? Nobody wants to be poor. On some level, we kind of see it as a little bit sort of like a curse. It's like something you really don't want because it really makes your life harder if you're struggling with money. That's a reality. But James actually points to an actual advantage here. He's pointing to the fact that when you don't have enough, you are painfully aware of it often. You can't hide the fact from yourself. And James is pointing to the fact that the grace of God is always more compelling to those who know their own inadequacy. And that's why the poor are often able to tap into the riches of faith that many other people are not because they're not as tempted to put their hope in money because they don't have it. And so James is saying, God loves to show people mercy and grace that society has often deemed less valuable. People are less important, less successful. The world's bench players. He died for them. And he even invited them into his family and his very kingdom. But James says, when you encounter different people in your interactions, and you apply your filter for what makes them worthwhile and valuable, he says, you dishonor them. You disgrace them. And you steal something from them that they are actually entitled to. 
real dignity and worth. And so this is the first thing James is going to say. The problem of favoritism, when you discriminate, you degrade. Discrimination is to degrade the very value that God has placed on a person. A few months ago, some activists went into an art gallery in Stockholm and they threw paint all over an original Monet. Okay, an original painting. This painting is easily worth over a hundred million dollars. Now you see stuff like that, and honestly, it's very frustrating. It's infuriating actually to me on some level. Because I understand that you're passionate about your cause, but to degrade a priceless work of art is petty. It's selfish. It is a small thing to do. And we do it every single day to the people we encounter. We throw paint all over their souls and we disgrace them. We taint the value that God has placed on them, his own masterpieces. But James points to another dynamic of this struggle when it comes to favoritism. Let's keep reading. He says, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? Now let's pause here real quick. Some people read this and think, yes, rich people are terrible. I'm glad the Bible says that. And actually, there is some nuance here. James is speaking to a specific situation. He is not saying all rich people are terrible and always exploit people. In this moment in time, this is exactly what his readers are experiencing, though. The brokenness of their culture and how the rich are massively exploiting and taking advantage of them. But James is now pointing to the challenge that they're having. Seeking approval from the world will compromise your faith. This is what James is trying to say. I think uh, many of you guys have probably heard the term Stockholm Syndrome. Have you heard of that term before? Now, the history of that terminology is kind of interesting. There were actually two bank robbers many years ago who ended up robbing this bank and holding four people hostage for six days. Now, throughout this standoff, the negotiators and the police noticed something strange happening. That these people who were being held captive started developing an affection for their captors. So much so that they actually even started resisting the police in order to try to help the people who were threatening to kill them. And so they noticed that people could actually develop a weird affection for someone that is actually doing them real harm. Their judgment has been completely compromised. And James is saying, you guys are showing favoritism to all these rich people. Those are the same people that are ruining your lives. You know that, right? And now you are favoring them at the expense of other people. And this is actually undermining your faith. Now, for anyone who's a Christian in here, think about the journey you have been on. You had a moment in your life where you committed yourself to a totally different value system. You committed yourself to a way of living that often flies in the face of our cultural standards, especially at this time. And there are times when, if you really are serious about living that faith out, you are going to end up in situations where people think you're actually opposing them. Now think about James readers right now. A lot of them are poor. Imagine the benefits they could get if they got in the good graces of these rich people. It could really help them solve a lot of problems. Imagine the risk it would be for them to actually resist these people. 
to speak truth to power, to stand up. This could come at a massive cost to them. This could really affect their families, their futures, all the different opportunities they have. And yet Jesus, at one point in his ministry, said this in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Now, when we talk about the world, we're just talking about the culture, its norms, the value systems of today. And there is a lot of pressure right now from our culture for Christians to actually compromise. There are a lot of conversations where it's like, hey man, why don't you just loosen up on that a little bit? All right, let's tone it down a couple notches, all right? That'll actually make people like you guys a little bit more. There's actually even entire churches that are saying, hey guys, we affirm everything. Everybody, come on in. It's going to be great. We're never going to tell you you're doing anything wrong. And guess what? Those churches are dying. It's not actually a great strategy. But there's actually other churches right now that are saying, guess what? We hate everything just like you do. Let's all be friends together and hate the world together. It's like, well, let's make sure we get hated for the right reasons, okay? Now listen, if you're a Christian, you worship a first century Jewish carpenter who says you're a sinner in need of saving. Did you think that was going to score you points? Did you think that was going to help you get a promotion at your job? Is this giving anybody an advantage right now in any of their situations right now? No, it's, if anything, it's getting harder, right? And so here's what James is trying to say. It is impossible for you to constantly be adjusting your values or your convictions based on the opinions of other people or our cultural moment. And if you do that, you will be compromising your own commitment to God. So right now here, little moment, self-evaluation. Are you compromising anywhere right now? Are you cutting corners? Maybe in some different spots? Maybe you're dating somebody right now and they are pushing you to certain lines that you know God has called you to avoid. But you know if you have that conversation or say, hey, these are my convictions, that could make the relationship a little unstable. That could be risky. Maybe you're in a job and the gossip train just starts getting going, you know, during the week. You're like, oh, geez, I don't want to be the square who doesn't participate in the gossip, you know? Like, we all pick on Susie. It just makes all of us like each other better because we can all hate her together. And if I don't say something, I look like the square. <laughs> you know, maybe you got that business, you know, your business partner. Maybe your superior's like, hey, you know what? Let's just upsell the product to that one client. You know, they can afford it. Nobody's really going to notice. It's not a big deal. It's going to really help our bottom line a little bit. You know, just a little, just a little... Squeeze the lemon just a little bit harder. Are you avoiding having a hard conversation right now because you're afraid of the blowback? Are you not standing up in a situation God actually wants you to stand up in? Are you watering down any of your convictions to avoid any hate that might come your way? Living by the convictions of your faith will cost you. If you're serious about following Jesus, there will be times when you will be resisted. You will be opposed. But the alternative, James says, is actually a lot more costly. 
Are you trying to please another person at God's expense? Now, James gives one more point here, and then I promise we'll turn a corner, all right? But we got to push through. Verse 8, Jesus says this, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not murder also said you shall, or he said you shall not commit adultery, also said you shall not murder. If you do commit adultery, but do commit murder. If, sorry, I'm messing this up, guys. Just stick with me, okay? La, 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 la. It just happens, all right? <laughs> I'm like, I can't read words. Let me try that again. For you said, you shall not commit murder. I'll said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, but do commit murder. You have become a lawbreaker. You guys are like, now I have no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> Brian can't even read it. Well, follow me for once again. I promise we'll make this clear, okay? Uh, anybody in high school, maybe, maybe some of you guys are in high school right now. Anybody remember taking the SAT or the ACT? You remember those tests? Okay, so if you remember this, if you took the SAT, a perfect score was 1,600. That's a perfect score. ACT, anybody remember the number? 36, right? So what if the standards got changed when you were in school and they said, here's how this works. The only way you get to graduate high school is if you get a perfect score on the SAT or ACT. You have to get a 1,600. You have to get a 36. How many of us would still be in high school right now trying to figure out a way to pass, okay? <laughs> You'd be struggling, all right? <laughs> some hard tasks to get a perfect score on. Now, thankfully, though, there are some tests you can take throughout life that are actually graded on a curve. So maybe you're familiar with this, you know, system where you don't get a perfect score, but based on how other people do, your score can actually improve. Now, it's kind of interesting to me, many of the conversations I have with people when we talk about God is around this idea of a graded curve, so many people think God graves on a curve. They're like, well, you know what? I'm not perfect, but I'm definitely better than a lot of other people. And you know, if this thing's graded on a curve, I think I'm in the top half at least. I'm probably in the top 25%. So I'm probably good. It's kind of interesting how that framework works in our minds. And this is what James is saying. Well, hold up, hold up. That logic actually doesn't work with God. And this is the third point of why, why this favoritism thing is a problem. God does not grade on a curve. This is what James is trying to say. So he uses that illustration of murder and adultery. Now, interesting that he uses these two examples. If you really think about it, murder and adultery are actually both examples of violating another person. You are placing your desires over their dignity. You're degrading somebody in some way. And James is saying, I know what you're thinking right now. Well, I'm pretty good. I haven't murdered anybody. No, I at least didn't cheat on that person, you know. And James said, okay, you think you're so great? Have you shown favoritism at least one time in your life? Have you judged somebody in your mind based on external factors? Guess what? You're guilty. F. You do not pass. You do not pass go. You do not collect $200. That is just how it works. And so... James is like, this is why this is a problem. This is degrading other people. This is really messing with your faith. And also, it makes you guilty before God. This is a huge, huge problem. But let's turn the corner now. Let's get positive. James, actually ha James has solutions for us. Let's talk about those now. Let's talk about defeating discrimination. How do you put this thing to death then? If it's such a problem, how do we get over it? Well, we just read, James mentioned it. He said, the royal law. He used this reference. 
He said, you know, there's so many commands in the Old Testament, but he said, if you really sum it up and live out this one thing, it changes everything. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus had one encounter with a guy at one point in his life. And this man comes up to him and says, hey, how do I inherit eternal life? How do I get into heaven? And Jesus is like, that's an interesting question. What do you think the answer is? And this guy says, well, I think it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, love God with everything. And he's like, and love your neighbor as yourself. You know what Jesus says? That sounds pretty good. How about you go do that? And you're going to be fine. You do those two things. Now, you know what this guy should have done right there? Walked away. All right? Conversation over. You just got a thumbs up from Jesus. Call it a win. All right? Move on. Couldn't help himself, though. And he's like, well, who's my neighbor, though, Jesus? <laughs> and some of you guys know how the story unfolds. Jesus is like, well, once upon a time, there's this dude who gets beat up and left for dead on the side of the road. And everybody who crosses his path moves away from him. Wants nothing to do with this guy. Way too much of a liability, way too much work, not even to get mixed up in that mess. And she says, after all these people pass him, there's one person who stops and moves towards this man. And this person ends up being a Samaritan. And this guy cares for his needs, makes sure he gets healed up, takes it upon himself. Now, Jesus in that moment was actually confronting the disgusting form of favoritism that the Jews had at that time, which was their racism towards Samaritans. They hated them. And what Jesus was trying to say to this man is you don't get to choose who your neighbor is. Anyone God has placed in your proximity is your neighbor. And genuine love does not move away from people in judgment Discrimination it actually moves towards people with mercy and grace. And James is saying, if you live in that way, if that really is your heart, that will actually put a death nail to the discrimination happening inside of you. So this is the question to ask yourselves. Who is God calling you to move towards? Who does God want you to move towards? Who has God placed in your proximity? Who has God made a neighbor to you? And maybe it's someone who you find hard to love. That's exactly the point. That's the whole point of this. And you see, when you show dignity towards other people, no matter who they are, where they come from, God has placed you on a path to putting discrimination to death, not just in your own life, but in the very fabric of our culture and our world. And so James finishes this whole thing up with a final challenge here, and we'll close it out. Verse 12, he says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who's not been merciful, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, I feel like I got to address this mercy thing, because sometimes... I think in our minds, we're like, oh, that's like kind of being nice to people. That's like kindness, right? Well, at least in the way James is using it, he is talking about doing tangible things for people who cannot pay you back. These are genuine acts of grace and care and generosity for people who will never be able to return the favor. This is what James is talking about, real action. But the point James is trying to make is mercy wins in the end. If you really choose to live out this way, 
James says, this is what will triumph over so much of the evil and the hate and the discrimination in our world. Genuine, true mercy lived out through your life towards other people. There's a man who lived right before the World War II situation and even while it was going on. He's a man from Japan named Shuni Sugihara. Now, he was actually a Japanese diplomat at the time. And he had this cushy state job. And all he had to do was just pay his dues. And he was on the fast track to a nice, respectable career and a comfortable retirement. That was his life's trajectory. Now, as this World War II thing started unfolding, he noticed the atrocities happening in Germany towards the Jewish people. And he noticed that they were starting to have a harder and harder time getting out of the country. And then they were starting to get killed. He was watching this unfold. Now, the Jews at this time had nothing to offer Shiuni. Nothing. And for him to get involved with them was massively risky to his career, to his family, to his very life. This is potential death sentence stuff to be able to get involved with some of that. And yet, a few years prior to this moment unfolding, Suihara actually experienced something from the, through the influences of, of his wife that he had never encountered before. The mercy of God. You see, Shuni had this experience where he experienced the amazing grace of God, the forgiveness for his sins, the very mercy of Jesus coming into his heart. And at the risk of his own life, his own family, Suyihara actually ended up providing transit visas to thousands of Jews at the time so they could escape through a Japanese territory and have their lives saved. And now historians have done a lot of studies on this and found that there are over 100,000 descendants of these Jews because of what Suyihara did at that time. Suyihara was able to show mercy because he experienced it himself. James used that illustration of a rich and a poor man at the top of the story. What you need to understand is you are the poor person in that story. You have nothing to offer God. There's nothing you could ever pay him back for. There's no favors you could do him to make you guys equal. You just showed up to God in nasty, tattered clothes, your disgusting sin. That's all you had to offer him. And yet God did not ignore us. He didn't just toss us aside. He didn't start to discriminate and play favorites. God showed mercy. And he gave us something that we can never pay back. He gave us total forgiveness for our sins. Nailed to the cross on himself so you could experience the very mercy and love of God. And the way you know if you're really somebody who's experienced the mercy of God is if you live it out towards other people. See, the call of a Christian is to live into this mercy because you have received it in infinite amounts. And can we just imagine this for a moment, church? Just imagine what this would really look like 
if a community of people committed to this? What would it actually look like for us to live this out? Imagine a community of people that's not just torn apart by all the political factions in our country. Imagine a group of people that just doesn't create these insider and outsider groups and writes people off based on one soundbite or one social media post. Imagine a community where when people walk through our doors, it doesn't matter what they're wearing, what they look like, what background they come from. They are going to experience the very dignity of God on their lives. People should walk into the church and just look around and be like, well, hold up, hold up. I see black, I see white, I see brown, and I see rich and old and young and poor. And yet this is like a family. What kind of dynamic is going on here? Like this doesn't even make any sense. These people shouldn't be sitting with each other. They shouldn't be hugging on each other between services. What is happening in this place? Do you understand? We are supposed to be the most radically generous, the most radically inclusive, the most radically gracious, the most radically honoring people on the planet. That is what it means to be the people of God. And as we live out this mercy that God has shown us, James says, this will triumph. This is what is going to bring victory in the world. This is what is going to defeat so much of the evil that we experience on a day-to-day basis. So Northern Hills, let's be that church. Let's live into that mercy. Let's people experience this through us. Because as we do this, I promise you, it will change your life. And as you live this out, it will transform this world. In Jesus' name. Will you all pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you so much for your mercy, God. It is only by your grace that we are even able to be here today in this room, people of so many different backgrounds, so many different life stages, and yet we are family, the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ because of your mercy, God. I thank you so much, Lord, for the power of your heart moving in people, the way it's transformed our world, We're experiencing all these benefits because some guy named James wrote about it 2,000 years ago. Thank you, God, for your goodness and faithfulness. And now I pray, Lord, that we truly would live into this, Lord. I pray we would see this for the real evil it is, God. This is not just a little judgmental discrimination thing. This This is evil in our culture. Any type of favoritism, any type of treatment just based on surface level, external factors, trying to fill in the blanks on people's lives. God, please, may we not be people who write the end of the story just by looking at the cover of somebody's life. And now, Lord, please let us be people of mercy. I pray we would have the courage to do it even when it comes at a cost to us. God, I pray you would use us to be a witness of the amazing unifying power of your love of the gospel. And as people see it, Lord, I pray that it truly would conquer. It would bring victory and triumph over so much of the brokenness in our world. And we pray this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Everybody said, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. If you would like to learn more about Northern Hills, you can go to nhills.org. You can also follow us online on Facebook, YouTube, or Instagram for more updates and events. We look forward to seeing you next week.